Good afternoon and welcome to the 65th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of COVID-19, race, and the healthcare crisis with Nick Ramos and Danny Ritchie. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on podbean.com or iTunes or on Stitcher or Spotify, anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 12, 2020, there are 7,578,078 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 7,440,350 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 2,036,429 are in the United States, up from 2,000,000 13,940 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 114,195 deaths reported from COVID-19 in the United States, up from 113,467 deaths reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Winifred Fredericks, civil rights activist and community advocate, dies of coronavirus. This is written by Deborah Fougere, and this comes from New York One, May 20th. Winifred McDonald was just 10 years old when she met the man she would marry at a community center in Harlem. Maurice Fredericks was 13. Even though fate forced them apart, their destiny could not be denied. It would take 10 years, but they married in 1947. Their daughter, Adele Lee, said it was love at first sight for her mom. My father was an extremely intelligent man who had a good command of the English language, Lee said. My mother was very much attracted to that and always told everyone that he won her over through his letter writing skills and his beautiful penmanship. Of course, his good looks helped as well. Twice a month, Lee brought her mom with her on visits to the Cobble Hill Health Center, a nursing home in Brooklyn. It was part of Lee's outreach with the Brooklyn Tabernacle Visitation Ministry. She said her mom loved telling jokes to the residents there under her own watchful eye. She liked to tell X-rated jokes, Lee said. When I told her from time to time, you can't read this one, she'd be upset. She couldn't understand why. I'd tell her we're representing the church. In late March, Fredericks's home attendant noticed her blood pressure was dangerously low and brought her to Staten Island University Hospital. A day later, she was told she tested positive for the new coronavirus. She was treated for pneumonia and sent home. Three days later, she was finding it hard to breathe and was hospitalized again. She died on April 8th, just 10 days before her 93rd birthday. The ironic thing is that now, not only will she no longer be there at the nursing home because of COVID-19, but many of the residents she ministered to also lost their lives to the virus, Lee said. By the end of April, the Cobble Hill nursing home had at least 60 coronavirus deaths. Winifred Fredericks' story is about love, and it's also about courage. She was born and raised in New York City. She worked as a legal secretary. Her husband, a World War II Navy veteran, became a letter carrier. They moved from Harlem to Brooklyn two years after they were married and stayed there together for more than 60 years, and together they became a part of history. My mom and dad were very much involved in the civil rights movement in the late 50s, Lee said. They participated in the 1957 March on Washington, led by A. Philip Randolph, Dr. Martin Luther King's March in 1963, and the Freedom Rides down Route 40 with the Brooklyn Congress of Racial Equality. They were part of the stall-in on the opening day of the 1964 World's Fair, a protest against job discrimination, police brutality, and the inferior schools and housing. They protested against Brooklyn's famous Ebinger's Bakery, blocking trucks, picketing, and boycotting to end their discriminatory hiring practices. They took part in sit-ins against the Board of Education and demonstrated against the Vietnam War. I admired what they did because when I was a teenager, I joined them on some of those picket lines, Lee said. I saw what was happening. I saw the things they stood for. I really admired their bravery and commitment. They made a commitment and stuck to it. 
She had a busy social life, was a dedicated member of the Bethany Baptist Church and AARP's 2197 Brooklyn chapter. She worked with her local block association, and she loved to travel, visiting Africa, Europe, Caribbean, and Asia. And she made her twice-monthly nursing home visits with her daughter. The residents always told her how much they appreciated her involvement, they said, and they looked forward to her being there. My mother was loved by all those she encountered, Lee said, and she will be sorely missed. She was a silent person, but strong in her own way. My family and I were very blessed to have had her for as long as we did. She was 92, yes, but COVID-19 stole the few remaining years she would have had. I'd like to turn to the discussion now and introduce my guests, uh, two great guests today. Nick John Ramos is an assistant professor in the Department of History at Drexel University. He is currently working on his book manuscript, Policing Health, Making Race, Sexuality, and Poverty Productive in Global Los Angeles, 1965-1986, which examines the interlocking relationships between the rise of prisons and policing and new spatial forms of segregation like Skid Row and new healthcare institutions originally built as anti-poverty projects, such as neighborhood health centers, community mental health centers, and emergency medical systems. He just published an op-ed article. You can see I post, put that up yesterday um, on my Twitter page at USF Disaster, or just go to the Made by History section of the Washington Post. You definitely want to check out this wonderful op-ed that Nick has written. My second guest, Danny Ritchie, MD, MPH, is a University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine graduate, completed residency in family medicine. Um, sorry, that, that seemed to have gotten one thing out of order here in the, in, the in the biography, so let me just move on. She's an expert in race, class, gender, and policy, and looks at the way that these reproduce health disparities and inequity, and medical students on the social and community context of health. These are the areas that she that she teaches and studies. She spearheaded the passing of RIGL 2364.1, forming the Commission on Health Advocacy and Equity of 2011. It requires health disparities reporting and diversification of the health workforce, such as community health workers. She is on the APHA CHW Section Policy Committee and Education Committee and the CHW Caucus, the HHS, NPA, and Region 1 Health Equity Council. She completed her training in family medicine at the residency program of social medicine at Montefiore Medical Center and Albert Einstein's College of Medicine. She came to Brown University to pursue health service research, and she completed her master's in public health at Brown in 2003. She works from community to the policy level to shift perspectives. perspectives working to increase the community-embedded CHW workforce that can implement programs to address community priorities. So with that, let me welcome my guests, uh, Danny and Nick. Thanks for coming on COVID Calls today. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Danny, I'm sorry that I uh, bungled the first line of your biography there. I'm really Apologize for that. Did I get anything? No, it was wrong? fine. I think it, it works either way, really. <laughs> okay. I, I cut it reversed and I apologize for that. It looks like I transposed okay. something when I was put it together. Um, and I can't wait to find out more about all of your wonderful work. Let me start by asking you both um, a question that I've been asking all the guests, and that's just to, to find out where you're calling in from and how things are there with the pandemic. And then also, if you're willing to say a little bit about it, how things have been with the protests against police violence and the death of the killing of George Floyd. Can I start, Danny, with you on that? Wow. So how are we doing? So I'm calling from Providence, Rhode Island. Um, so I'm still um, affiliated with Brown and, um, and, and have an organization called Community Health Innovations of Rhode Island. And um, so Rhode Island is, a small state, you know, we have about a million people and um, we've been in the forefront of doing some innovative things, right? Um, and we won, we're, we're led by um, a, a woman governor and our health department is, read, is led by an African-American woman. So we have two women at the lead who've been um, taking the lead on this. And, um, but I can't say that we haven't been hampered by 
you know, the issues around the public health infrastructure that has been decimated uh, for decades, as Nick talks about in his article. And so that it's, you know, we were struggling um, in the beginning to get the equipment we needed, competing with other states, and we're a tiny state. And, um, but we managed, we, uh, uh, um, you know, just having equipment, the tests, the, the, the P PPEs and so on. So our, our cases, though, you know, reflect the disparities that happen across the state. And we actually have an unusually high percentage of Lat Latinx people with um, uh, coronavirus. We had estimated they were shocked to find out when they finally started teasing it out, 45% um, of the cases. Yeah. And um, so, and I would like to say that I think that because we have a commission on health equity that it requires a report every year, every couple of years that are presented to the legislator and our governor, and that was passed in 2011, so that understanding disparities, and this was the first year they actually started doing benchmarks, like look, look at the social determinants of health and seeing the disparities across, you know, education, housing, and, and so on, that it, it's not a shock. You don't have to start to teach people about what this means in this time. So our governor knew when our, you know, director said, we need to be making sure that we're having an equity lens um, uh, it was it wasn't a mystery, right? Mm. Um, they are now doing also doing a probably one of the first piloting of um, looking at uh, the serum the serologies to start to get a much more of a handle on what the general population infection is. In reality, we should have been doing this months ago, but where's the infrastructure? Where's the money? Where's the support to do this? And so, and we are not going to make up for decades of a decimation of our of our public health system. I could tell you, I think you know, Latinx people turns out that they're about three uh, over three times as likely to uh, be infected, uh, and um, African Americans are two times as likely. Um, and the serology tests showed that again that there's eight percent of those were tested. Uh, for Latinx, 5% for uh, African-Americans, and I think 0.1% for, 0.9% for, for whites. Um, so yeah, that's where we are. Well, I wanna dive into, into more of that um, in, in just a moment, Nick. Let me get first from you where you're calling in from and what the situation is there. I am calling from South Philly um, in Philadelphia here, you know, uh, we're sort of in a weird moment here because, you know, we're still in the pandemic, but, you know, um, the city is reopening business. So today is, you know, where many businesses are yellow at what, you know, what the governor calls the yellow phase. And so mm -hmm. I've been receiving emails here and there about, um, you know, reopened restaurants, reopened businesses, um, and still people are weary of going out. You know, all of this is happening in a city where we've seen some of the most well-attended protests around George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor. Um, but we've also seen some of the most repressive aspects of the city's police force. Uh, we've also witnessed here, um, you know, a little bit of a sort of white vigilante citizens patrol. Um, and, you know, I mean, and this accounts for why we've seen such a strong showing in, a, in you know, uni the United States is what is, you know, the largest, poorest city in the United States, why folks have really come out to say, you know, um, you know, we need funding for the pandemic and we also need to defund the uh, Philly Police Department by $120 million. So that's sort of what's going on around me. And I'm just trying to be really attentive um, to all of it. On um, Monday, God, was that this week? I guess yeah. it was. Um, Nick and I are colleagues at Drexel, and we had a, a teach-in, uh, and we had 70 students, faculty, and staff participate in that uh, sort of a Zoom teach-in. And I wondered, um, Nick, if just to stay with us for a second, what kind of – we had a lot of feedback from students on that. Did you hear anything in particular in that that, 
that really moved you or you thought really was uh, reflective of the tensions of this moment? I Personally, I was deeply moved by much of what I heard. Yeah, you know, I, I really, uh, you know, we were joined by students and students who are plugging themselves into um, actual organizations that are grassroots organizing, um, mm-hmm. that they've, they've, they've linked themselves up with organizations involved with Philly We Rise, um, you know, dot com, um, if you want to check them out. Um, and that was to me inspiring because it reminded me of, of the lessons that I just imparted to my students in my U.S. civil rights movement course, which is um, people have been organizing for a long time for mm-hmm. this moment. And, you know, the the defund call does not come out of nowhere. And I, what I love is that these students knew that and they understood that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the one thing that I, I really took out of that. Um, you know, and I look to the youth to lead at this moment in time. Uh, I tell my, my last cl- uh, meeting with my class, I said, look, like, you know, you're inheriting this world. Um, and it's time that, you know, um, that you tell folks what kind of world you want to step into. So I'm glad to see that. So I want to, we're going to get some, some history here to start. Maybe I'm going to actually, I'm going to stick with you, Nick. Um, and I'm going to just read a couple lines here from your op-ed piece in the Washington post and see what, if you can help us with this a little bit. So you said in this piece that since the 1970s, we have valorized expensive drugs, technology, invasive procedures, and intensive labor arrangements to save us when we are at our sickest, rather than address non-medical and public health approaches that prevent the onset of serious disease when we are at our healthiest. This shift towards an acute care and emergency-focused system, however, was not inevitable as a result of decades of public policy rooted in the aftermath of the 1960s uprisings. So can you, can you bring these, draw these things together for us? I know there's a lot. It's like a, your book project and your research and the yeah. op-ed. But just to sort of lay some groundwork for this conversation, these policy choices that come out of this previous era of civil rights activism and the obituary that we heard today leads us into this a little bit. Mm-hmm. So understand some background of how we get to these talk, this discussion we're having today. Well, you know, um, the funny thing is the way that I came to this project is that I had read um, and was inspired, like many folks in this moment, by the work of Ruth Wilson Gilmore um, and her book, Golden Gulag. And in that book, she really talks about how the rise of policing comes out of this moment in time that most people narrate as a kind of pulling back of, of, of um, taxpayers' willingness to, to give up t- their money, right, to, um, through taxes to government. Um, and so what she looks at is that the pot that we were left with after citizens revolted around taxes is we continue to um, allocate those money, uh, the, our, the, that revenue, uh, more and more towards policing. And so my work really looks at to, uh, to see how we didn't actually stop funding. Uh, we, we didn't stop um, giving money to public health. The way that we gave money to public health changed. Um, and, and in particular, um, I look at how um, that that shift moved towards um, emergency medicine, which um, is a really ill fit for um, democratic medicine, right? Um, and it's extremely um, cost prohibitive, um, a very specialized form of medicine. Um, and yet we put um, so much money into it at the same time that we put um, money into um, militarizing the police. And so what I've, what my work thinks about is how that shift in tax revenue, just sort of where the lines go, right? How we shifted the center of public health to be away from preventative health towards emergency medicine really says a lot about how we've chosen um, what our priorities are. And for me, um, the, the moment that clicked for me was the moment that I stopped seeing emergency medicine as a public health feature and sign, uh, uh, saw it as a public safety feature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and we have to kind of, one thing that I didn't talk about in the, in the op-ed, but is in the book uh, manuscript and the research, is how, you know, the new, um, this new thing called emergency medicine really came to most citizens. Most people came to know it not only through television, but through, um, the gunshot wounds and stabbing victims that are um, that um, the United States said that we have no responsibility for 
right? Local communities say we have no responsibility for that violence, um, you know, unimpeded violence on the streets. So at the center is all of this um, is a concern around black life, you know, and, and, and just sort of the, the devaluation of black life um, in American cities. So that's sort of what the, what I'm trying to pay attention to in, 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 in the work, but this means we've just seen, you know, where the money um, could have gone to putting roofs over people's heads, um, food and nutrition programs, those have just, you know, the budgets have, um, the line items for that have just gone skinnier and skinnier. I don't know, Danny, if you could add anything to that, you know, but. I'm, I'm chomping, chomping here. <laughs> we should have more conversations. Um, you know, I think that um, if you don't mind, I just, you know, if, um, so what I hear in that shift is how, and, and I would like to have more emphasis on how we we have market decisions for everything to run everything and we want our our hospitals and our healthcare to work as a transactional service right you give something you get you you bill for it um you know and then you know and it goes up the more technology you do well that's more money that you can get and mm -hmm. so we're incentivized to keep running this procedure-like um, system in order to validate the reasons of, you know, uh, to, 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 to um, you know, get reimbursed for the work that we're doing instead of understanding it as taking care of people. Yep. And so, so the, I think, you know, you did really well about showing like how here we are in this crisis and, and now because we don't have elective surgeries or elective procedures and there's a decreased hospitalizations, the, these um, hospitals are, you know, and clinics are going broke, right? And so now they're having to lay people off. So the incentives of, of what we've modeled, so then you've modeled a public health system also around a clinical model, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And not about a, 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 a population health model. Um, and you know, trend. and so we see where we are. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, clinicians have to make a billable procedure, right? When they they put in something, and some of the things that we we're saying here um, that um, really produce health and sustain health, like housing, um, food, um, uh, you know, uh, employment. Uh, these are things that doctors cannot should you know uh, can advise but that's not a that's not billable you know right right you know? right right yeah nick if i just stick with this for a minute why that particular moment you know what's happening i mean we often in american history we've we've i think incorrectly in our historiography we sort of point to the 60s as this great moment of excitement in the streets reform um, and then the 70s are kind of forgotten, you know, that whatever hardened from the 60s is kind of we move along quickly into the into the 1980s. But what you're suggesting here is that there's some pretty profound shifts, structural shifts that get hardened by the rate already, maybe moving into the Reagan years. Can you say a little bit about what, that that timing of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that the work looks at is how, um, you know, the anti-poverty programs that began in the 60s. Um, really started to focus in on um, these things that we would now call social determinants of health. Um, you know, jobs, housing, employment, food and nutrition, childcare, um, and some of the some of. But by the 1970s, what I see is um, the rise of biomedicine, particularly in in um, amongst large research medical, you know, research academic medical centers is the incentive to um, do high, you know, labor intensive um, research um, on procedures and drugs um, that moved medicine away from that. And so what you got was even within medicine, um, within, in some, within even some advocates of community mental health was a, was a call to sort of um, align themselves with the kind of um, movement towards "Quote unquote research medicine," and so some of that comes out of this, right? Um, a lot of this too comes with the fact that um, 
these programs that most people um, most people use the, the term welfare as a shorthand for them, they became associated with communities of color. Um, and so this is, you know, this is sort of a long swing um, towards Reagan in the 80s. But I really look at how all of this is happening in the 60s and 70s, right? And, you know, these anti-poverty programs were not funded enough. And so, um, but through citizen maxim, the sort of, citizen participation mandates that mandated that um, communities, uh, poor communities be involved in the sort of implementation of anti-poverty uh, anti programs, lending themselves by the 70s for people to say, well, it's clear that that these people, of, um, these poor people cannot pull themselves up, um, you know, even if we're giving them this money. And so the, the, the sort of ethos became, there's nothing that we can do to change the culture of these folks. Um, they're poor because they, of them, uh, of their behavior, um, of their culture. And those are um, poor excuses for, you know, larger structural issues that um, face poor people, particularly of color. So let's bring this up to, up to COVID-19. And Danny, I want to ask you, I mean, it, it's a deceptively simple question. I think with the a very complicated answer that I want to explore with you, which is why is it that we look across the, the numbers today in the United States and communities of color are just indisputably more susceptible to higher rates of COVID-19 infection? Um, is it that they're more susceptible or they're great exposed more? All right. So you know, I think we've noticed and there's been a lot of discussion about the essential worker, the frontline worker, um, you know, the grocery store owner that, you know, or the, the grocery store clerk um, and the uh, CNA, you know, the people who are in the hospitals and then the janitors. Um, and it, it gets, um, so there's more exposure, uh, you know, here in, in Rhode Island and I'm sure everywhere, um, there's the issues around um, uh labor, um, immigrant labor, right? And so a lot of some, some so, so what we're thinking and we're seeing in the um, Latinx community are, uh, you know, um, uh, immigrant labor that's being exploited. Um, people working in factories, we actually find that people are being, by the companies transported in closed systems that don't have space, don't, and then they, um, and then they come home, and they're, you know, they're living lots of people in one place. If you're on the transportation system, there, there isn't enough space. Um, there aren't enough buses, and so they actually just, to, just today added that in their screening, they're noticing that it's bus drivers, and restaurant workers. So all of these people. So who's in the who's in the back of the restaurants, right? Um, and 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 so it is susceptibility has to do with the the social structure and who who works where uh, and for what. And the fact is, they can't not work because they won't eat. They won't be able to. They won't eat. Yeah, I would say that you know uh, to, to add on, it's the compulsory nature, the almost compulsory nature of that exposure. You know, we're we're really witnessing the kind of extremes of a global economy that has really racialized the essential worker, as Danny is saying here, um, as a kind of necessary but oppressed category of labor. Um, you know, the way I think about it is that we've really sort of held the essential. Uh, I mean, you've seen this in memes that you know we've really held essential workers hostage in our society in order for our society to operate. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is the, the historical tie-in here is that, you know, uh, this nation has been holding Black people's labor hostage for generations. Um, you know, I and mean, we could talk about this during slavery. We could talk about this, um, uh, you know, with slave patrols and with the police forces as sort of being the kind of um, enforcement mechanisms to really, quote unquote, keep people in their place. Mm -hmm. Um, and so part of my my thinking is that, you know, the compulsory nature of labor then really means that essential workers have a higher frequency of contact with people, which then means that, of course, they're going to have a higher rate of acquiring the virus. Right. 
right, is, right, right. And as what Danny is saying is that it's compounded by a kind of historical concentration of poverty in 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 particular neighborhoods, um, and that these neighborhoods reflect the kind of segregation, the forces of segregation. Here, I'm thinking about you know racist policing, racist real estate practices on the part of banks, real estate agents, and homeowners. Um, you know, and that means that folks are going home to ex and exposing their own loved ones who are also working, right, or, or, or um, you know, and trying to survive. Um, and so I, the way I think about it is that um, for most people, coronavirus um, exposure really is um, not a choice. It's a mandated work hazard. Right, right, right. I mean, I think that you, you really, um, you know, and that's, a really important um, distinction because I think that we we have a society that wants to blame the the um, person you know of of color the the, the marginalized person say it's something about their biology. I would say, and I know that you had wanted to talk about this, is that yes, people they carry a larger burden of other diseases, which is why they're having worse outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and those other diseases are, bec again, because of the social systems that are um, structural, you know, in, in a way that oppresses them, and, and they're carrying that chronically all the time, um, which allows them to have more of these chronic diseases. So those are, you know, so there's two things that you're seeing, but because we have... Um, a, a discourse in our society that somehow, you know, these folks just, 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 just not, they're just sickly, you know, yeah. they're, they're not mm. meant to survive. Right. Um, and that's a fault, long right? history. Yeah, yeah. So um, it allows us to, instead of understanding them as the canary in the coal mine, right? Yeah. And, you know, we really have to get to understanding how those that are disproportionately burdened with um, carrying the society um, are yet they end up having the greater burden of sickness and illness um, but they it does not mean but others also suffer from that and the statistics show it and you talked about it in the number of covid cases that we have in the United States we have the largest disparities of in in the world I mean in, in the industrialized world and it has always been, that we have the largest disparities and we have the worst health outcomes. We might have extended life expectancies, but when you compare it to other places that don't have as many disparities, our life expectancy is worse. So, at, so across the board, not just you know the, the most marginalized. We can't be doing this dichotomous rich poor. Oh, the poverty. Oh, oh, oh. You know, but no, it's every. You look across the board and you go through every income bracket, and they will have worse outcomes. Than, than elsewhere. So we need to understand that, that what we do is impacting everybody. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking to Danny Ritchie and Nick Ramos. And I want to I want to stay with this the couple key things here to me that I'm learning a lot about right here. I mean, one is one is this important point that was made about um, the health burden in communities already, which might then. And so if you don't think about that, then that will immediately skew your thinking about who's more likely or less likely to have certain health health outcomes with COVID-19. Right. Right, 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 and and I think there's a tension there, though, because and even yeah. as I do, I I read I read the statistics, I read these numbers because I I think they're important. We need to know them every day. We need to keep be aware of them, and yet those numbers and so much of the public health information that's been given to us, um, it it feels very much like a dashboard. It gives us some sense of control, some sense of monitoring, but it doesn't address standing what you're talking about of this sort of burden of disease um, and, and even of stress in, mm -hmm. in communities. And right. I don't know the, I don't know the way out of that. It's like a health communication problem. You want to communicate clearly about the scale of the disaster, but then, um, you know, people are often not given public 
health directors or even Anthony Fauci, they're not given that second sentence or that third sentence or not to mention the fourth. How do you think about that difficulty of, of communicating what, what we just talked about? So I, I just said that, I, you know, it has to do with our societal discourse. We kind of repeat the same lines over and over again, and we never talk about the root causes. So people don't have a place to go to think about it differently. They're just hearing, oh, yeah, well, they're sick and they're dying. Well, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that, that's the way that's that's the facts. That's the way they are. And they don't get the other portions of understanding the uh, uh, present and the oppression and the impact of structural our structural violence and our you know our racism our structural racism and and um, the ways and you know all of the isms right that people are are impacted with um, there's no place to think about that so they don't see how that sets people up right and how to have to end up addressing that in order to make a change, right? You so where do you have to make the change? It just becomes this, that's just the facts. That's just the way they are. And I don't, you know, the, the, the issue is that even well, when I'm talking with students, you know, I give a course called policy culture discourse that shape health and healthcare. And the fact is that they come because they feel like they'll take a class and that nobody ever talks to them about why their health disparities. They just go, mm. health disparities. Okay, look, health disparities. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, and there's there, there's no real explanation of it, and so and so also since we have a legacy of you know, de- of, of you know hundreds of years of expectation that if you are um, a person of color that you're more sickly and you're bound to die out, um, then uh, well, there's just nothing we can do about it because that's just your predisposition. Um, it's very, yeah. Mm. It, it makes me think to come to the other, the other part than in the previous part of our discussion, which is so important is about this, Nick, you used, you talked about essential workers mm-hmm. and, and this, and the sense in which, um, African Americans have been subject to slavery and to, you know, forced labor of all types in American history. And I'm thinking about the 17, the, in the 1790s, even in Philadelphia, the yellow fever epidemics that we had there. And it's, it's kind of become a sort of famous, at least famous in Philadelphia, that, you know, the Congress, the president left, the Congress left, yeah. everybody who could leave left yeah, the city. Right, right, right. And the mayor stays and you get a few public officials who stay, but everybody who's middle class, certainly elites left the city. But the African-American population, some of which is slave and some of which is free, mm-hmm. remains because they don't have freedom of movement. And Richard Allen, who founded the Mother Bethel Church and Absalom Jones, they're sort of asked, forced into service, organizing the black population to tend to the sick, to tend to the dead, to build coffins. Um, and they become the essential workers of the 1790s. Mm-hmm. They're free to demonstrate their commitment to the population, but they're not free to say no. And of course, the assumption right, right. at that time also is that they, because they're black, they can't get yellow fever. This was the assumption of the white medical establishment of the time. And I've, they've been very much on my mind lately. And that problem has been on my mind around this sort of mm, the use of the term essential workers and what it obscures. And Nick, I just wanted to dig a little more into this with you because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is really fascinating. You know, I've been actually thinking a little bit more about another epidemic, the smallpox epidemic um, after um, uh, in the midst of the civil war and emancipation. Um, And, um, you know, uh, racial, those who believed in um, scientific racism used it as proof that, um, this the smallpox epidemic was a black disease that showed that um, that black people were incapable of living outside of white patronage. But then there's another um, sort of Freedmen's Bureau argument around this: how to get rid of the smallpox epidemic, and their answer was, "Well, we need to send all we need to send black men back into the fields." Uh, because once they start earning, then they can start taking care of their families, and therefore we won't need to take care of 
this epidemic, um, each each black household will. Um, and so if you look at some work by you know folks like Jim Downs, for instance, this sort of instantiation of compulsory wage labor in the South um, comes along with the reinvention of the state hospital in Georgia to um, separate, quote unquote, dependents from the able-bodied, right? Mm -hmm. And the able-bodied meaning literally workers that need to go back into the fields to kind of, you know, revive the country back into its economy. And um, it's been on my mind because, um, again, it's, an, it's, it's sort of this moment, it's kind of twist on this moment of, of freedom that is actually unfreedom um, or a kind of new um, creation of, of a labor arrangement. And that's the labor arrangement that we live with today. And I think is more salient, right? Um, and part of the reason, you know, the kind of odd, you know, rhetoric of Trump that, you know, the way to get around the coronavirus is to send people back to work. I mean, it's, it's still, it resonates. It's not the same. Um, but that's, that's actually mm -hmm. the epidemic I've been thinking a little bit more about um, because it points to the kind of labor arrangements that I think um, are at the core of, of the epidemiology of coronavirus. I, it seems, I'm just looking at the, the yard signs that are out there, at least in my neighborhood, praising essential workers. Mm -hmm. There's maybe one that's, that says we, we support essential workers. But there's mm -hmm. others that differentiate. We support health workers and mm -hmm. essential workers. I've already, I'm, I've been trying to, it's not scientific, mm -hmm. but just take stock mm -hmm. of the fact that there does even seem to be what you would think would be another moment for a sort of, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the roots of this. Let's possibly look at this as a moment for truth telling and reform. But there's this differentiation that's made between the essential worker, which is the healthcare worker, and then the other essential worker, which may be, and, and all of the sort of assumptions that go into that, what communities they live in, mm -hmm. their race, their status in, in mm -hmm. society. Mm -hmm. But that word essential is doing something right now. It's a doing a sorting right now, which I'm a little worried about. So it sounds like you're, you're kind of talking about a class distinction, right? And how we want to separate them um, in terms of, you know, like that they're, you know, there's the essential workers, but they're not the same as mm -hmm. the, those that are the, the healthcare practitioners, right? Um, the physicians, the nurses, um, and, you know, this, and they're so different than the clerk. So I'm a physician, you know, mm -hmm. and um, essential but, work. I, I, but I, I'm not I don't do clinical practice now. So I'm not on the front line like that. But um, I've always understood myself as a worker. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's another, you know, thing that we we try to make it differentiate in our in, in our society that we're somehow this elite class and we don't we don't have the same um, issues uh, as others because we're this special group. And the fact is, is like, no, yeah. there are no PPEs, you know, that, right. that you have to be in the hospital yep. and you have to work without it. You, how about, how about a garbage bag? Um, yeah. So, uh, that's the, you know, and, and, and the fact that, you know, that, um, that people have been allowed to think of themselves as somehow distinct, um, is, you know, another conundrum and, uh, issue that we don't really talk about. I mean, who, who, who's making the money in those hospitals? I don't think the CEO is exposed like the physician is. And let's look at his paycheck. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. There you go. I want to remind people you're listening to Code Calls and talking to Nick John Ramos and Danny Ritchie. I have a question that came in actually um, from Amy Slayton, and here's the question: It's worth is it worth critiquing cultural claims that medicine and bioscience naturally represent leading edge human knowledge? 
itself a concept that historically buttresses whiteness, U.S. exceptionalism, etc. Nick, let me throw that one to you first and see if you want to think with that at all. Yeah, I mean, one is is the way you know, one is the way in which um, you know the the image of the white physician has always um, papered over the existence of other um, you know. Uh, um, medical traditions, um, you know, in fact, you know, when I teach, um, my, my course on the, uh, race and history of medicine is we begin with how you see, uh, European, um, practitioners really learning from, um, enslaved black people, um, enslaved black healers, um, you really learning from colonized people in India, right. Um, you know, the, the sort of might of British medicine comes directly from stealing medical knowledge from the folks they colonized um, and papering over the fact that um, uh, it, um, that that knowledge, you know, in the hands of these um, European practitioners becomes Western knowledge, right, at a mm -hmm. certain point. Um, and that um, the sort of um, birth of surgery and um, the things that we associate now with sort of like the fancier... Um, more labor intensive, um, biomedical focused, um, uh, um, traditions in medicine really come out of, um, they're only made possible by the ways in which certain populations have made, been made vulnerable by, um, slavery, um, and different labor arrangements. So, you know, the birth of gynecology, um, comes, you know, in the United States really comes from, we owe it to Anarcha, Lucy, and Betsy, who were enslaved women, that um, were experimented on by um, Dr. J. Marion Sims. So these are sort of ways in which um, um, that, that what we count as sort of um, quote unquote Western knowledge and the kind of West or white physician is really made off of um, the knowledge and um, really like harmful um, invasion of people of color, right? But I, I, I would say too that um, the more damaging thing is how medicine since the 1960s and 1970s, this moment that I look at, has separated biomedicine from other forms of health. Um, mm -hmm. um, you know, and this is what, to go back to an earlier conversation, is, you know, having a roof over someone's health, uh, how head is, is just as much about health as it is about, um, you know, uh, writing a script or mm -hmm. um, carrying out a procedure. One is more, more so. value, more, more so, right? Mm -hmm. One is more value than the other, right? Um, and so, you know, we're so fascinated and amazed by that technology, the sort of miracle, trans, you know, the sort of miracle of these really invasive um, and really expensive procedures that we don't focus on, kind of the everyday um, aspects of health. I'll stop there. Danny, I know that you're Yeah, I want to see yeah, Thank yeah. you, Nick. Yeah, so um, and actually, so I'm a social medicine physician. And um, the fact is that um, social medicine was coined by um, uh, Virchow, who was um, an Austrian um, and German physician. Um, I, he worked in Germany. He was Austrian. Um, and and the, the it spread across you know, the world, um, it's social medicine. And that was the, the tension and it was around the time of revolution, right? Yep. And the tension at that time that there was a real look at the social aspects of disease mm -hmm. and understanding poverty and um, what was setting people up for disease. Um, and so there was, there's been a tension since then. And so the biology, the, the, the you know, the biologization, you know, becoming, it is starting in that time because you're that's when you're you're seeing the the gynecologists you're seeing the 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 physician the rise of the profession of of physicians and they're claiming special knowledge and um and then using um uh people of you know black women um especially in gynecology that is really the rise of this this you know the journals and this mm -hmm. and this this research and the science and creating their special class, right? As you're saying, on the backs and bodies of Black women. Yeah. Um, so that it it, it it's 
And then, you know, and, and so when you have penicillin, you know, that comes in and so that you can start to just reduce everything to, look, we found a cure for this biological thing that's happening here. And so there you go. We don't have to talk about the social. Bye. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we, again, don't have this understanding about how much more, more of our social systems actually um, uh, contribute to the poor health outcomes. Except that, as you were saying earlier, Danny, when in, in a sense that when, even though we may have the penicillin or we may have whatever kind of cutting edge medicine, um, it's not distributed equally. So, you know, the assumption there would be, yeah, even if you had the techno fix or the biological fix, the good medicine, whatever it may be, then that would apply across the population. But as we were discussing earlier, that's not the way that 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 has played out. So right. even right. if you went wholesale into the idea that, no, just everybody should be able to get this medicine, we know in practice that it hasn't worked out. Well, it just goes way. back to the transactional issue, right? It comes mm -hmm. back to you. Who who are you able to extract the funds from, right? They're going to be people who can afford it, who have the insurance. Um, and if you have bad insurance, then we have to figure out how to do a markup. Um, so uh, why you might see more C-sections among, you know, African, unnecessary C-sections in African-American women who are, you know, well, anybody, right, just so that you can do procedure. Right. But especially for those who... Um, a natural birth doesn't really bring as much money. I, I want to just make an observation here in speaking to both of you, which to me is this amazing continuum of history into talking about public health as it is. And you're kind of almost finishing each other's sentences, which is amazing. And, 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 and it's Danny always Becker, been that way between us. Yeah. <laughs> great. I mean, no, and, but no, I think it speaks to a, to a pedagogy. I mean, I think it speaks to yeah. a mode of teaching and learning that, um, I hope is being practiced is reproducible. And Danny, back to something you said earlier about public health education in which students are told, here's the list of social determinants of health. But so let me ask you just a bit about your own experience as a learner or as a teacher. Is there much there for those students to get so that they can get a handle um, on this background so that they know the social determinants more deeply as structures that are come out of roots of these have systems. They have power. They have. Look um, yeah. <laughs> <My face. laughs> Okay. Thank you for answering that question. This is a podcast too, so I want to make sure that people know that the face she was giving was the oh. face of the raised eyebrow. But go ahead. Um. So yeah, the I would have to say that. So, I decided to go into this. The work that I do is you know much more community grounded and looking at how do you and I think we should get to this, what makes a community safe, mm. right? What, what makes us safe and healthy? And, um, and so we can, we can get to the police stuff, right? Because that's not what making, what's making us safe. And what makes us safe is housing, having, you know, nutritious food, um, having, you know, having a, an excellent education that outweighs and makes us more healthy than any any testing that we can have, any kind of screening that we have. It has much longer um, uh, carries much more in 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 in, um, in in improving our health. So um, I left the clinical world, not because I wanted to, but because I didn't get support to do the work that I wanted to do. But I said, if I'm a true, uh, you know, primary care prevention, I need to be getting to the problem before it happens. Because by the time people come to see me in the clinical setting, it's late. It's too right? late. Yeah. It's too late. So, um, and I basically was told, well, we don't get paid for that. Mm -hmm. So, Goodbye. Uh, yeah. You know, good luck with that. Um, really valuable, but so okay. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah. So I, I again, I not sure. It's probably more ad hoc, according to who might what instructor you might get um, that might give you more of an idea about what the structural issues are. 
Um, but the, the kids that I've had, that I teach undergraduate, not in the public health, you know, not in the medical school, are coming to me because they're not finding it Another place, see. in the yeah. other place. I mean, this yeah, is this great. is really the, the the shortcoming of graduate medical education or medical edu medical school education in general, which is you know, um, medical school only teach you um, how to use things in a in a medicine bag, well, um, but when you get into a clinical um, atmosphere, you're realizing that um, you know you could treat the wound or the immediate biomedical affliction that's um, that's in front of you with the patient. But you know that wound or whatever that affliction um, has is connected to a sort of social world that may actually return um, that wound or, or, you know, have an affliction somewhere else. And um, for doctors, you know, this is, you know, the difference between curing a biomedical affliction and actually being a doctor who gets in to make sure that the people that you see are healthy. The distance between those two um, points are can be you know, leagues. Mm. Um, and that means, you know, when I talk to medical students, I always tell them, you know, um, medical school is not going to teach you what you need to know about that, right? Um, mm -hmm. They're not going to equip you to do the kind of advocacy work that Danny is doing, right? Um, the, the kind to address the structural issue. If anything, it's going to teach um, medical students to throw their hands up in the air and say, I can't right. do anything about the structural. Right. This is why I think the, the folks who are in medicine and are out in the street or supporting the protesters understand um, something really important in finding, aha, here's the line item. The line item is here where we can actually finally get our patients, you know, that, that roof over their head, that job, that food, and, you know, the, the programs that allow that to happen. Um, that's what we're seeing. Um, and that's why I would say that um, this moment is giving more of a, 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 an education to those graduate medical students um, who are listening. Well, I want to stay with this. We're almost up on time, but I, I, we, we have to talk, we have to bring this back together in the context of um, what's been happening in the streets and, and with George Floyd. And, and I was um, just the, the fact that he, had a coronavirus um, diagnosis and then seven weeks later was murdered. Um, to, first, I mean, I don't even know how to bring those two into the same frame. You're helping me understand that a little bit, but I guess, you know, one way to just sort of ask the question, Nick, to I mean to you to start is just to go back to this sort of what you were talking about in your op-ed is just, let's just look. Uh, what are the disparities between healthcare and policing in American cities today? Minneapolis or Philadelphia or Los Angeles. I mean, just to start with that, can you give us a sense of the of the scale of it? Well, I mean, I mean, I, I don't know if I can get that. I mean, I would say that immediately, you know, what George Floyd's murder brings to my, or the sort of re revelation that he had both coronavirus and is the victim of police brutality, it just shows the sort of um, proximity to uh, and vulnerability to death by police or by coronavirus right um, um, again bring us um, into an analysis of what it means to be an essential worker right uh, what are the sort of mandated work hazards right that I mean George Floyd was both he was a truck driver and he was a security guard right so here we are we understand two ways in which every time he walks out of his um, his house, he's exposed to these mandated work hazards, you know, the police and the coronavirus. So, you know, that's one way that I'm sort of thinking through. I don't know if it's fully everything that I would, you know, but that's where I'm at right now. I, I think I just saw, um, I was just trying to think of uh, something I, I ran by earlier and it said that, um, you know, structural racism um, is uh, a larger public health um, uh, disaster than coronavirus. So if anything, that's what um, George Floyd's having coronavirus and then being killed by, you know, um, a racist cop. Yeah. 
Danny, you were suggesting a minute ago, thinking about community, the health of the community and the safety of the community as being, I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you use the word safety, but. It, uh, yeah, that is, safety. Right. What makes, it, what makes it, the community safe? Yeah, that's important because right there, you're talking back to the notion of of safety that seems to have been embodied in the claims for militarizing the police in the United States since 9-11, which has made right. us manifestly unsafe yeah. in many ways. The one right. we're talking about right now is, right. is what's been witnessed in streets of Minneapolis and also in many other ways as well, which yeah. um, is not just restricted to those communities, but in this sense it is. So is this a moment of, of what's possible right now? Let me ask it that way. Is this a moment of possibility, Annie? Uh, well, we all hope it's a moment of possibility and that it, there, you know, people don't get exhausted and it just gets swept back under the rug um, because those that are in power have the uh, capacity to maintain their power and not to make any change. Um, but you know, I, I for the the confluence of of our our of seeing of, of the the illness of the, the this virus right now, um, and 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 seeing the underlying disparities that were already there that are revealed that were that many of us have been fighting about and fighting over for so long exposed by the virus. On top of the, the, this, another another horrific um, murder. Um, it just it, it 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 it's not something that can be as easily um, forgotten. But we do then have a, we we have this chance to really talk about the health of communities now that wasn't really there before, and um, and thinking about. And, you know, so there has been lots of um, conversation about how we don't need police to save, you know, um, and uh, we can police ourselves. We are essentially good and decent people um, and and uh, we can take care of each other. Um, and then and but that also means having um the means to be able to take care of ourselves, to be able to have a stable home, to have decent right. food um, and, you know, decent education and, and um, safe, just safe spaces, you know, yeah. um, and places. So, yeah, I think this, hopefully we'll be able to have more of that conversation and people will have, be able to track differently. Um, and, and in the understanding of what, why, why are these things are happening. Nick, let me bring that question to you as we close out, because I think if you're just looking at public opinion polls um, right now, not the best measure, but it's one that we have. Um, this idea, this idea, a lot of words up there, reform, defund, abolition. Mm-hmm. They're all gaining traction, apparently, mm-hmm. um, not just in Minneapolis. That does indicate a rupture um, across American society with two things that had been inextricably bound, which is that more police equals more safety. Mm-hmm. Obviously, for generations, that hasn't made sense in any communities in America, but in other places, completely unchallenged. Just the two just absolutely are connected. I know you've been articulate about this, seeing this, this as a moment of opportunity and also just being clear about how we talk and what kind of evidence we bring. So can you say a little bit to us about that? Yeah, I mean, I do think that this is a moment of possibility. You know, um, as a former union organizer, I, you know, I, you know, when I was training other organizers, you need three things to sort of create um, a moment of change. One is anger, and we definitely have that. Two is hope, and hope is a plan to win. Um, And, you know, the organizers who've been organizing for this moment around um, abolition and defunding the police um, are offering folks um, a plan to win, right? That's really concrete and tied to really a civics lesson in how to cut a budget, you know, at this local level. Um, there's definitely urgency in the last, so it's A-H-U-Y, um, So anger, hope, urgency. And the last thing is you, you know, um, every individual has to do something to be able to participate 
And I think that only real change will come along if people really um, engage themselves in some sort of um, um, organization, you know, civic organization that really um, uh, advocates for the kind of change that people want to see in this moment. We saw it during the civil rights movement. Um, and I think that that is kind of um, what I hope comes out of this. And that's what I hope people transform their energy out on the streets into is to actually, um, you know, create some social structures that can actually sustain change. Um, that's the way I see it. Um, and, you know, the democratic thing about it is not up to me and my vision. It's up to, you know, that sort of participatory democracy. I'm going to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls and I think we're going to stop there because it's a really hopeful and inspiring way to draw this really great conversation together. I learned a lot from both of you, Danny Ritchie and Nick John Ramos. Thank you so much for joining me today for this hour. I want to remind you. people you can, you can catch you. COVID calls uh, Monday through Friday, five o'clock and uh, stay healthy. Everyone have a, a good weekend, stay socially distant and we'll talk to you on Monday. Bye.